This is Tempest Tossed, Conversations on Migration and Mobility, and I'm Alex Alenikov. The fact that a court is unwilling to say no does not mean that there's a green light to do whatever you wish. We all have our obligations to construe the Constitution seriously, regardless of whether a court will, will stand in the way. During the 2016 presidential campaign, Donald Trump proclaimed in no uncertain terms that he favored a complete ban on all Muslims entering the United States. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. One of his first acts in office was to issue an executive order that implemented this campaign promise. The, the executive order was met with protests at the nation's airports and a raft of lawsuits, and lower courts enjoined the order. Uh, the Trump administration then rewrote the order, uh, but it too was enjoined on the ground that it went beyond the president's authority granted by Congress under the immigration laws, and also that it violated the Constitution's ban on religious discrimination. Um, the administration then tried a third time, and again lower courts invalidated the order. But last month, the Supreme Court, in the case of Hawaii versus Trump, held that the president's order neither exceeded the president's authority, uh, nor did it violate the Constitution. At least that's how the decision has been widely reported. A professor of law, Marty Lederman, takes a different view. Uh, he argues that there were, in fact, five votes on the court holding that the ban was unconstitutional, but also five votes saying that it was not the role of the courts uh, in the area of immigration regulation to tell the president no. This is an interesting but not uncontroversial reading of the court's opinion. And it has important consequences for how we think about presidential and judicial power regarding immigration. Marty Lederman teaches at the Georgetown University Law Center, and he is with us today. Marty, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Let me start with this. Uh, the day after the Supreme Court ruled in the travel ban case, the New York Times published an article written by uh, their legal experts, uh, Adam uh, Liptak and Michael Scheer. And it starts with the following paragraph. Uh, the Supreme Court upheld President Trump's ban on travel from several predominantly Muslim countries, delivering to the president on Tuesday a political victory and an endorsement of his power to control immigration. Shortly thereafter, you uh, 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 wrote a, a blog entry uh, with the headline, uh, the title, Contrary to Popular Belief, the Court Did Not Hold That the Travel Ban is Lawful, uh, Anything But. Did the New York Times get this wrong? Um, so the Times got it slightly wrong. Um, certainly it was a political victory for the president, and it will mean going forward that he will be able to impose his travel ban, almost certainly, uh, but it did not affirm his power to do so, um, except as a statutory matter. It did not, in particular, hold that the travel ban is constitutional. And in fact, what I tried to argue is that there are at least five of the nine justices who indicated that they think that it is unconstitutional. 
but nevertheless that the courts are not the proper body to do anything about that. Okay, well, I want to work our way towards that conclusion. Let's start with the, the Roberts opinion. Now, th- we should uh, remind ourselves that this case came up in a somewhat odd way. It came up as a, a decision on a, the granting of a preliminary injunction by the courts below, meaning that it wasn't a full decision on the merits of the travel ban, but rather a lower court had said, while that decision is reached, the government is not entitled to enforce uh, the ban, and that's actually as the case was presented uh, to the Supreme Court. What did what, what do you think Roberts said about that? I think he said that it is likely and, and almost certain, get, given the court and court going forward, that the, that the president would prevail in the lawsuit. That that the merits of the case would be uh, again would be determined against the plaintiffs, against the challengers to the to the travel ban. Which is effectively the the end of the litigation, most likely. There might be some peripheral or subsidiary litigation for some um, immigrants trying to come into the country or their families, but probably not. It, it's probably the end of it. But it was interesting. To, well, one thing that was interesting to me was there's a general conception out there, which you have, Alex, written about yourself. Um, in constitutional law and immigration law, that the Constitution just doesn't regulate at all the ability of the political branches to decide who can enter the United States. The questions of entry are are completely within the political branch's power, and they can use whatever criteria they want to decide who can who can enter and who can't, including even race and religion. And I think it's fair to read even the Roberts opinion to at least implicitly be rejecting that commonly heard view. So, so let's take a minute on that. So, so that view is often called the plenary power doctrine, that there's actually no court role in reviewing decisions uh, by the political branches as to who can enter. That's on one side. And on the other side, we had in the dissents the view that, well, this is a case arising under the Establishment Clause of the Constitution, religious discrimination, and the highest kind of judicial scrutiny should apply. But it seems that the court came out somewhere in the middle. What what standard did Roberts apply, and where did it come from? Well, before we get to that, and I'm happy to address that, I, and I want to ask the forbearance of the lay listeners here for a second, I think as I've taught it and as I've understood immigration law as a constitutional law scholar, there are at least two different versions of what you call the plenary power doctrine. One is that the Constitution, as I just suggested, doesn't regulate the power at all of the political branches. They can they can allow they can exclude anyone they want on any grounds that they want. The other is, as you just suggested, that regardless of what the standards are that that govern the political branches, Congress and the president, the courts have no role in regulating or in keeping those political branches in check. The courts are just out of the picture altogether. And I don't think the court adopted either of those two versions of the plenary power doctrine, although it did decide to give extraordinary deference to the president. I think the Roberts opinion is best read as, first of all, rejecting the view that the Constitution plays no role. And secondly, even at least implying that the courts have at least some outside, if very minor, role 
at checking the political branches and the president in particular. And I take it that Roberts, if Roberts had been convinced that in fact this, this third executive order, which was before the court, had been motivated by animus against Muslims, that he might well have found that that violated the Constitution and that the court was an appropriate organ to say so. So I'll agree with the first, but not the second. I think I read his opinion to at least imply that if the president's promise of a Muslim ban was a necessary cause of the promulgation of this order, that that would in fact violate the First Amendment, that that, that would be unlawful. But I don't think he was quite so willing to say that if he had found that it in fact had done so, that it would be the proper role of the courts to say no. I think he his his view appears to be that as long as there is some, as long as one can imagine a president doing this for a good reason, a permissible reason, the courts have to assume that it was done for a permissible reason, even if there happens to be a lot of evidence to the contrary. Okay, so let's now get to your somewhat startling conclusion that, in fact, there were five votes on the court that this ban was unconstitutional, even if the court didn't have the uh, power or authority uh, to enjoin uh, the president's order. How, how do you get to five? How do you count to five? Well, Justice Sotomayor's dissenting opinion, joined by Justice Ginsburg, clearly would, they would have held that, right? They would have held that it's a First Amendment violation and that the courts could enjoin it. Justices, Justice Breyer, joined by Justice Kagan, um, was urging a remand to see how the order was being implemented in fact, whether the, whether the agency's implementation of it betrayed a Muslim bias. But at the end of his opinion, in the last paragraph, he said that in the absence of such a remand, and of course there was no such remand, he would join Justice Sotomayor's opinion. So effectively the four dissenters all agree that, you know, unless there were evidence to the contrary in implementation anyway, the ban violates the Establishment Clause, and the courts could enjoin it. Justice Kennedy would be the fifth vote, at least. We, the other four we don't know about. But Justice Kennedy, in his very cryptic and unusual and interesting separate concurrence, seems to say, quite forthrightly, that the Establishment Clause and other provisions of the Bill of Rights limit the political branches and the president in particular in terms of the grounds that they can use to exclude people from the United States. Um, and then, and, and that there are certain principles, um, and he calls them rights even, but, but certain principles and limits such as a prohibition on discriminating against people on the basis of their religion that apply to the United States, even when it is acting overseas and even when it's acting to decide who can come into the United States. In fact, almost going so far as to say that these are, in a very Kennedy-like way, fundamental precepts of the Constitution, right? That our country is founded on the idea that religious minorities ought to be able to come to the United States and that we ought not to discriminate against people on the basis of their religion. And that that binds the president and Congress uh, in their actions, even with respect to the immigration power. So do you think that Justice Kennedy thought that there was uh, a religious animus here, but that the court 
could not play the role of enjoining it? Or do you think he's uncertain about that on the factual issue? I, th- I read him as being fairly certain. It strikes me that he's making a plea to President Trump, <laughs> make, make of that what you will, to do the right thing, right? He's, it, it's virtually a, a broadside to the president saying, please abide by your oath of office, comply with the requirements of the First Amendment, do the right thing, even though we're not going to be the ones to tell you you have to do it. So, so let me let me see if I understand this. You think that there are clearly five votes, the four dissenters plus Kennedy, who believe that a an executive order based on animus against a particular religion, even in the immigration sphere, would be unconstitutional, but that only four of those five are willing to say that the court has the power to declare that the, the president may not enforce that order. That that's right. I, I would slightly amend that. If the religious animus, or here I would say the promise of excluding Muslims, the promise the president made to his supporters during the election, if that was, an, at least if it were a necessary cause of the, of the action, um, I think it would be a harder case if there were just a smidgen of some you know, anti-Muslim animus, but, but plenty of other wholly sufficient reasons well, for the order. Well, let's take. Let, let's think about that. So, so Justice Roberts might have said, Justice Roberts was a government lawyer and understands how government works. Uh, he might have said, look, uh, Trump got it wrong the first time, but they did three executive orders. And by the third executive order, the government lawyers got to it. Uh, and that they uh, included Venezuela and North Korea. And they knocked out some of the Muslim countries. And it really was all about uh, adequate vetting of people coming into the country because, according to President Trump, we didn't really know who people were, where they were coming. And the government has every right to say uh, other countries have to help identify their their people before we let them in the country. It's almost by saying whatever original taint was there with Trump's campaign statements, uh, those at some point through a third executive order uh, have to be washed away and the lawyers can do their work and write a constitutional order. Do you disagree with that? Just slightly. I would say that he doesn't actually hold that the taint is eliminated by the lawyers or by this six-month process. He simply says that the courts can't look behind it. Um, if it, I read his opinion to leave open the idea that, that is shared by at least the other five, that if in fact the Muslim animus or the anti-Muslim promise was the but-for cause of the order, it would be unconstitutional. Um, but he does think that the process that he describes is sufficient to give the courts reason not to question the bona fide reasons stated by the government. Now, in your blog post, you you you, you express a significant skepticism about the national security uh, justification for the order. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, the thing that bothers me the most about the Roberts opinion is that even under the very highly deferential standard that he decides the court should apply, I think he should have struck down the ban. And the reason for that is because I think most people misunderstood the the justification that the president and his and his officers um, provided for the ban. There was no suggestion that under the current rules, the rules that were in place before January twentieth, two thousand seventeen, that nationals of the five Muslim nations in question that 
that were still subject to the ban by the time the court got to it, there was no finding that there were dangerous or terrorist individuals, nationals of those nations, who were slipping through the cracks and getting into the United States. Because my understanding is there was no evidence of such problem at, at all. Um, and in fact, under my reading of the immigration law, if someone from one of those nations could not demonstrate to the satisfaction of a state consular official that they weren't inadmissible, that is to say that they weren't dangerous, they're not allowed into the United States. The burden is on the immigrant to demonstrate that they aren't a problem. And that's going to be hard to do for a lot of people, right? If if there's not sufficient evidence one way or the other, the consular official is going to say, sorry, we don't have the necessary assurance. And therefore, the re only real effect of the order, it seems to me, was to exclude the nationals of these countries, overwhelmingly Muslim, in cases where the people in question were not dangerous. They had actually demonstrated that they were admissible, and they were being excluded anyway. That is to say, the president, it was really conspicuous, did not make a finding that the governing rules resulted in the entry of dangerous persons into America. And that, in my mind, would have been sufficient reason for the court to hold that this didn't even pass the deferential review standard that Roberts uh, said the court should apply. So I want to get back to Kennedy's uh, opinion. It is uh, an interesting opinion. It's very short, um, hard to read, cryptic, as you said. Um, as you also pointed out in your um, your your blog, uh, Marty, um, the Kennedy is not known for judicial deference. He wrote uh, both decisions, you might say, on the left and the right, liberal conservative, that showed a willingness to be an activist judge and to strike things down. What do you think accounts for his diffidence here and his deference uh, on this issue that you think he might well have thought was motivated by religious animus? It's a great question. I'm not sure this mystery will ever be solved of why did Justice Kennedy I, – I think it's fair to say, Alex, I don't know if you would agree. I think most constitutional law scholars would agree that Anthony Kennedy – is probably the mo the least the justice in our nation's history who's the least deferential to the political branches, the but the, the the sort of the strongest judicial supremacist, willing to find unconstitutional action by federal, state, and local officials and legislatures wherever he can find it and assert the power of the courts to correct. What it. are some ex Kennedy examples? Of that well, the ones that the ones that people know quite well, of course, are a lot of um, a lot of uh, state level um, matters, such as Obergefell, the same sex marriage case, and Lawrence versus Texas, the sodomy case. But include also um, a bunch of um, cases involving federal statutes, including the Defense of Marriage Act, for instance. A lot of different speech restrictions that Congress has imposed. Citizens United, for instance, the the you know the statute that had been in place for sixty years prohibiting corporations from spending money from their own treasury funds to to influence elections. So you know I list about two you know a dozen or two of the most high profile such cases in in my blog post. They include a bunch of federalism cases where Kennedy thinks 
says for the court that the founders would have been aghast at Congress's overreach and intrusion into the areas of the states, such as City of Bernie and Alden versus Maine, for you lawyers out there. Um, and so he has been quite aggressive in virtually every area about asserting the role of the judiciary at keeping other actors true to their constitutional obligations. As as one reader pointed out to me, however, it's not uniformly the case. And there have been at least a couple of immigration-related cases, Zadvidas versus Davis and a couple of others, in which he has been a bit more deferential. So I think in the area of oh, another one where he wasn't, for instance, is Boumediene, famously, which involves the rights of, of al-Qaeda members at Guantanamo to challenge the terms of their detention. He, he permitted a challenge there. He voted to permit the challenge. Permitted the challenge even after Congress had precluded it. So that just goes to show even in the area of national security, Kennedy is often willing to, um, to, to have the court check the political branches. But in the area of immigration, there have been a couple of instances where he's paused or been more deferential. And so it's a little bit more complicated. It's not a uniform um, a, a uniform story across the entirety of his career. Nevertheless, I think more than any other justice, he's been willing to say no. So why didn't he do so here when it seems so palpable to me from the face of his opinion that he was deeply concerned, perhaps convinced, that the the anti-Muslim ban promise was the cause of this order and that he thinks it is deeply contrary to American constitutional norms and values. You know, my guess is as good as yours or anyone else's. I think, like the rest of the majority, he is nervous about making precedents that will bind future presidents who might not be as obviously ill-motivated as President Trump appeared to be. There's a flavor of that in Roberts's opinion, right? The fear of tying the hands of of well-intentioned presidents, and maybe Kennedy shares that view to a certain extent. Let, let me give you one other, the sort of the inside Washington view on this, which has been rumored, and that is that Brett Kavanaugh was a Kennedy clerk, that the administration had been trying to get Kennedy to uh, leave uh, the court for some time so they could appoint the fifth justice who would be more reliably conservative, uh, that Kennedy may well have wanted one of his clerks to be on the court, uh, and that uh, had he ruled flatly against the president, rather than simply saying, uh, this doesn't look good to me, but I'm not going to uh, allow it to be enjoined, uh, really preserved a chance for Brett Kavanaugh to be uh, elevated to the Supreme Court. That's kind of a conspiracy theory, but w any reactions? No, I don't think there was a conspiracy. Um, so, so it was striking, right? We were all surmising what explains Kennedy's opinion on Tuesday when it was issued, and then on Wednesday afternoon he announces his pending retirement, impending retirement. Um, and so it begins to take on a bit of a different hue, particularly then when two of his clerks, Ray Kethledge and Brett Kavanaugh, are among the four finalists to replace him. Um, and Kavanaugh gets the nod. And he had to be aware, of course, um, that Kethledge and Kavanaugh were among the, the judges who were most likely to replace him. And I'm sure he wanted one of the two of them to be his replacement. 
I am skeptical of the reports that there were negotiations between the White House and Kennedy. I just think that would have been so inappropriate under modern norms that it would have been beneath Kennedy to do that, and I doubt there were those sorts of discussions. Having said that, it had to be at least in the back of his mind, the knowledge that if he actually were the fifth vote against Trump's travel ban, I think it would be fair for him to assume that that would have been the dagger in the heart of the Kethledge and Kavanaugh chances to be his replacement. Now, whether that was necessary or sufficient reason for him to vote as he did, I don't know that we'll ever know. It's probably overdetermined. There were probably several several considerations that he took into account, and I don't know which of them would have been sufficient for his, for his judgment. But he's only human, and, and he must have been thinking that this is small potatoes compared to who's going to replace me as justice yeah. for the next 30 or 40 years. And, you know, you wouldn't want to antagonize Trump the day before he resigns. Yeah. Tired. Yeah. So let's talk about implications in in a different sense. Um, th- as we as I started, uh, as I said at the start here, this is a case involving a preliminary injunction, and the the court's actual holding is to remand this uh, to the courts below for further uh, proceedings. Um, two questions on this: What happens now in the courts? Uh, uh, in two senses: one on this particular case, maybe it's over, as you said. But secondly, as is pointed out in several of the opinions, the the travel ban does include waivers where people can uh, come in and say, despite the fact I'm covered by the ban, it still should be waived because it's undue hardship to me and I'm really not a risk. How does that play play out? And then I'll ask the second implication question after that. Yeah, I'm a, I don't know yet. I haven't been keeping up to see whether the there were there were several different consolidated cases, only one of which went to the court, but there were several several cases across the country challenging the ban. I don't know whether any of the lawyers in any of those cases has made has yet made any movement toward, you know, having as applied challenges back in the lower courts. What's an as applied challenge? You know, where a particular where a particular it could be of one of two types, I suppose. First, Justice Kennedy's opinion actually suggests that there might be room on remand to demonstrate that that this cannot be explained by anything other than anti-Muslim animus. He 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 both offers that idea and then almost pulls it back one sentence later by saying that you know the court should be very wary about looking into the president's motives. So he sort of invites a possible continuation of the litigation about whether the Muslim animus was the but-for cause of the order. But I'm just going to be very shocked if such such litigation succeeds. I just think the Supreme Court, I don't know what would happen in the lower courts, but at the Supreme Court, the deference that the majority, now which does not include Kennedy, that they were paying to the president is going to make such a litigation probably futile. But an as-applied challenge, as you're suggesting, would be a particular immigrant claims you know, notwithstanding the ban, I qualify for one of the waivers that, that are described in the ban, and I have a legal right to that waiver, and so I should be let in anyway. I, I'm dubious about that litigation as well, because the ban itself purports anyway not to give anyone a right to the waiver, to make it wholly discretionary and very open-ended in terms of the criteria that the consular officials can use uh, 
in determining who can be granted waivers or who should be granted waivers and who can't. I don't want to say for sure, because I'm not close enough to the litigation, that no such cases could possibly be successful. But I would, if if and when they get to the Supreme Court, I again would be um, very dubious about the prospect of of any such cases prevailing. So I think it's more likely than not that we've seen the effective end of the challenges to this particular travel ban. So let's think about implications in a second sense. Um, as you point out uh, quite strongly in your blog post, even if the court is unwilling to declare this unconstitutional, uh, executive branch officers and the president take an oath to uh, uphold the Constitution. And if, in fact, there are five votes, as you count them, to say that uh, on its merits, this was a ban motivated by religious animus and therefore should be found unconstitutional, even if the courts are unwilling to say so, what does that now mean for the conscientious government lawyer, which you once were by serving in the Office of Legal Counsel? If this, if the White House counsel were to send OLC a, a memo and you were still at OLC saying, uh, what do we do uh, based on this opinion? Uh, what's our legal obligation? What would you say? It, that's a great question, Alex. I, I, I was. I follow in your footsteps in two respects here. One, I followed you to OLC. And secondly, this is an idea that you and our colleague Nina Pillard, who's now a judge on the D.C. Circuit, wrote about very, um, really intriguingly, I believe, back in about 1999-2000 in the wake of another immigration decision by the court, in which the court again just paid a lot of deference to the executive, but suggested that sex discrimination in immigration law was, at least in some circumstances, unconstitutional, even if the court could not enforce it. Um, the first question is, what should the president do, right? A president who was serious about his oath or her oath and who believed that it was unconstitutional, as Kennedy suggests, to exclude people on the basis of religion would do the right thing. Um, that's what Kennedy is urging Trump to do, in his opinion. Now, I'm under no illusion that Donald Trump is about to even think about this for a nanosecond, let alone say, gosh, you're right, I was acting impermissibly, and I hereby repeal the travel ban, that everyone knows that's not going to happen, um, even though a conscientious president might do it. So what about the lower-level officials? So one, one thing I invoke in the post is, it's in effect what Deputy Attorney General and then Acting Attorney General Sally Yates did in the first two weeks of the administration. OLC was asked whether the ban was facially constitutional, and they said it was, but they were very careful to say, we are not looking beneath the face, What this was the first ban, what you've purported to say is the reason for the ban. All we're doing is saying, if what you're saying is true, it's constitutional, the Foreman Legality Memo. The acting attorney general, Sally Yates, who had been appointed by President Obama, not by President Trump, she famously refused to enforce the, to, to go into court to defend the travel ban or to enforce it, and made noises or suggestions that the reason she was doing so was because she, unlike OLC, kind of knew what was behind the ban and saw that it was ill-motivated. And she, she was very careful about how she phrased this because she wanted to be, there was a certain amount of etiquette toward the president. But the 
plain implication was, I don't believe that this, you know, was, was the product of, of well-motivated presidential decision-making. And so she refused to enforce it. And I thought that was putting aside whether that was the proper, you know, remedy to, to not actually defend it in court. I think her refusal to play ball and therefore to be removed by the president, which she, she knew would be the result of her, of her decision. And it was within 24 hours, she was doing the right thing there. Um, and that's a hard thing for government officials to do, either appointed and certainly career officials. They too have to pay some deference to their president who has, for whom they work. And if the president is saying, you know, this was done for good reasons, it, it's a little cheeky at, at a minimum and audacious perhaps for lower level government officials to say, I'm sorry, Mr. President, I don't believe you. I think this is ill-motivated and would never have been promulgated but for your anti-Muslim promise. It's more, the, the real question is, what about those officials who are very close to the process, who, who did this six-month review, who drafted this new memorandum? They might know, I surmise that they know that this is really trying to put a good face on what was an ill-motivated decision in the first place. And what should they do? I, there's a part of me that thinks a, you know, the proper thing for a government official to do is to say, I'm not going to be privy to that. I'm not going to be party to that. I, I refuse to, you know, dread, what's the old phrase, put lipstick on a pig or right, right to, to dress up something that's unconstitutional with a facially legitimate but pretextual justification. But that's wrong. If this is actually ill-motivated, Mr. President, I'm afraid you shouldn't be doing it. And it's unconstitutional. I don't want to, I don't want to, this is obviously a very difficult thing for any government official to do. And it's a very solemn decision to make. But it's one that, that you wrote, and I agree with you, that government officials should take much more seriously. Their job is not just to provide some legal cover for unconstitutional action whenever it may occur. It's to actually have the United States Act take care that the laws are faithfully executed, not simply lawyered up to the point where they'll survive judicial scrutiny. And that's, that's sometimes a very difficult, tall order for government officials, but I think it's something to aspire to at the least and to, and to cause one to pause before being party to a charade, if that's what you think is going on. Marty, that was a really interesting and thoughtful question. It was not asked uh, so that you would uh, cite the article Nina and I wrote. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> I think these were... The, and readership, readership yeah, more. Yeah, these, the, these are your, your thoughts I was taking from the blog post. Um, but it's very sobering what you're saying, because um, we have an order that from least executive order one seemed uh, clearly motivated by this uh, animus and Rudy Giuliani said he was called in to, to try to make it look uh, legitimate. I don't think anybody really, really doubts that. But then we have a court in a very narrow uh, majority that backs away from saying something. We probably have executive branch officers uh, either loyal to the president or who are civil servants who have a very difficult time saying they won't enforce this and we end up really with an imperial president uh, left to do 
what he wants to do. We also have a Congress unwilling to uh, to play its vital role in checks and balances. This bodes uh, very badly for our republic. And I wonder if you have any final thoughts on this before we close for today. Boy, I wish I could end on a more optimistic note. I, I do think, and I think you'll confirm from your service in government, and, and most good government lawyers would confirm, that it happens much more frequently than people realize that lawyers say no to their clients within the executive branch and that clients, including presidents, back down, right? They don't do what they've been told is unlawful. And if and they take no for an answer much more frequently than most people realize. Now, I, I, I don't have any illusions that that's going on right now with this president, but I've seen it done. And, and I would hope... And it's been done throughout history, right? Presidents are not as cavalier about their legal obligations as many Americans think. And in particular, as many lawyers think, right? Um, there's an inclination to think that if I'll get away with it in court, if the court will pay me deference, I'm going to do it regardless of whether it's legal. And I'm sure that happens quite a bit. But it also doesn't happen in a lot of cases, and, and there are presidents and other officials who have historically really cared about adhering to their oath and to abiding by their obligation to take care of the laws faithfully executed and who take those obligations seriously. Um, this is obviously aspirational. I don't mean to be naive in thinking that it's what goes on every day, but I'd like to have some hope that even that in the long run, um, that presidents and their and their aides will take those obligations seriously as they often have, and more importantly, and this was the point of my blog post and in part of your article, that we not conflate the fact that a court will not enjoin some some action with the idea that it's legal. Right? That doesn't make it legal. It just means that, like many questions in American law, it is not the final role of the judiciary to settle the question, that, that, uh, that there are a lot of questions that are and have to be or must or have traditionally been resolved by the political branches themselves and by the people in the, in the, election, in the election booths, and that there's nothing impermissible about that or strange about that. And the fact that a court is unwilling to say no does not mean that there's a green light to do whatever you wish, that we all have our obligations to construe the Constitution seriously, regardless of whether a court will will stand in the way. Marty Lederman, thanks very much for being with us today. Uh, Marty's blog post, uh, contrary to popular belief, the court did not hold that the travel ban is lawful, anything but, was uh, originally published on the Balkanization blog. Uh, Marty, thanks so much for being with us and really for your very uh, interesting, insightful comments. It's been a pleasure, Alex. Thank you so much for inviting me. You have been listening to Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Technical assistance is provided by Sahil Ansari at Dodge 112. Our themes were composed by Eli Alenikov. We would welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes. You can reach us at tossedtempest at gmail.com. That is tossedtempest.com all one word, at gmail.com.